Before the show, a quick word from our sponsor. Stacks 2.0. They're no longer block stacks. It's now the Stacks 2.0 blockchain. And they're really orienting around Bitcoin, right? So the whole idea is it's a blockchain. They have a proof of transfer, POX, and you peg in Bitcoin and Bitcoin is the money on the blockchain. They also have a governance and staking token to support that blockchain, STX, but you don't need that token to use the blockchain. And that blockchain, it takes on a lot of the features that you know you can't build directly into the Bitcoin blockchain, things that other altcoin chains are trying to do, and it brings it to a Bitcoin-denominated world. So I think that the world is going to start denominating in Bitcoin, and the closer and more trustless you can get to using Bitcoin, the, the more people are going to want to use those applications. So it's exciting to see what Blockstacks is doing here and them committing to Bitcoin. We're starting to really see the narrative of Bitcoin, not blockchain, like their marketing, their branding is all about, we are part of Bitcoin. We're leveraging the most important, the most prevalent blockchain and Bitcoin is money on our blockchain. So I like the turn of directions. Go check out stacks2.com. So that's S-T-A-C-K-S-2, the number two, .com and learn more if you're, especially if you're a developer. But if you want to just poke around and see their blockchain-based decentralized apps and DeFi stuff, again, they're doing that all on the Stacks 2 blockchain. Live from Utrecht, this is the Van Weerdum Shorsnado. Hello. Van Weerdum Shorsnado. That's right. Did I say it right this time? I don't know. We're not going to check again. This is take number three. <laughs> right, now you're going to ask me whether I rioted, and I'm going to say no. <laughs> you're, you're like psychic. Yes. You're able to predict the future. Okay, so let's, let's skip all the rioting jokes and all the pronunciation jokes and get to it. Yes. What are we going to discuss, Shors? I think we're going to talk about compact block filters. Yes, a.k.a. Neutrino. Yes. First of all, so yeah, w these are a new type of filters for light clients. So first, let's start at the beginning, Shors, what are light clients? Yeah, and we should also caveat that by new type, we mean from 2018 or something, but... It's not yeah. brand new, but it's hey, that's still... Fairly new. Yeah, we mentioned in the last episode that we were going to talk about that at some point. Yeah, we did because we did a Bitcoin Core 21 episode and it's one of the new futures in Bitcoin Core 21. That's right. And now we're going to get more in depth about Neutrino. Okay. So what are light clients? Sure. So, so the idea of a light client is that you don't want to download the whole blockchain. And Satoshi made some remarks about that in the original white paper, how you could avoid downloading the entire blockchain. Maybe if you're on a mobile device. Yeah, you want to be able to use Bitcoin, that is, send and receive Bitcoins, for example, Satoshis. But you don't want to have to download the entire blockchain, which you normally would have to do in order to know what the current state of balances of UTXOs is, which yeah. you need to know in order to know if transactions are valid and so forth. That's the, right. the downside is it takes you know, about two days, I think, nowadays, depending on how fast your computer is, but something like that on a reasonably fast computer. Yeah, I think I can do it in five hours, but... Yeah, because you've got, like, a wizard computer, but normal normal people would take, like, two days. But even on your phones, yours, you couldn't do it in five hours. No, on a phone, it's, it's horrible. It's days, if not weeks. Yeah, so that's where light clients come in. So what are light clients? Yeah, so th th of course there are different ways to do it, right? Mm -hmm. the, the very lightest of lightest clients would be a custodial wallet, but we don't want to talk about that. But here, what we're talking about is uh, something that uses SPV, so Simplified Payment Verification. 
Oh yeah, so custodian is one way to do it. The other way is to sort of connect a wallet to a full node, which you're running on some other device. But what we're going to discuss here is yet another solution, which, yeah, SPV, as you mentioned. Yeah, so simplified payment verification, as it says, it is a simple way to verify payments. And why do you care about that? Because the, the real one of the things you care about when using Bitcoin is that you actually got the coins that you think you have. Right, that may be something you want to verify, and there is actually a way to do that, which involves knowing the headers, and the headers are eighty bytes each per block, so it's pretty small. Yeah, the block headers. And then, in addition to that, a proof, a Merkle proof that shows that this transaction is actually inside the block. So, if you know what a transaction is and you know that it's in the block, then you know you've received it, assuming that the rest of the block was valid and nobody did any shenanigans with, with the history, etc. Yeah, so in a way, you're kind of trusting hash power. You're trusting that whoever invested all this energy in hash power did so because it would be too expensive to do this while mining an invalid block. Exactly, so you're trusting other people to do the verification. The other thing mm -hmm. is that somebody can prove that you did receive a transaction this way, they can give you that proof. For example, the person who paid you, but also the wallet has a way to fetch it, which we'll talk about. But it doesn't work the other way around. So just because nobody's giving you a proof doesn't mean that you did not receive the transaction. You cannot prove that a transaction does not exist. Right. So let's say I'm running an SPV client and someone told me they paid me, then I wants to know if that's really true so i would ask you shorts who's running a full node you could tell me i didn't receive anything even if i did i'm still trusting you in that way yeah we can go into a little bit more detail about how that works so the naive way would be okay if somebody makes a payment to you then that person should send the proof that's possible but it's not very convenient so what instead happens is something called bloom filters and what your lightweight wallet does is it creates a filter which says, give me all the transactions that relate to this address. But, but it doesn't really say which address it is. But there's some magic math going on so that when a node sees a certain address, it'll know that it has to send you a signal. So for example, it would say, give me all the transactions in which an address starts with an A. Right. And that's not exactly how it works. It's mathematically more sophisticated than that. Sure. But the, you can understand intuitively what the privacy benefit of that is. Like, I'm not telling you that which address I have. I'm just telling you, tell me everything that has an A in it. Mm -hmm. And you can configure that. So you can say, well, give me every address with A, B, C, D, E, F. Some more specific things. So you yeah. get only the transactions you care about. If you care a bit more about privacy, you ask for a bit more, but it comes at the cost of bandwidth. Yeah, so the thing is, your your actual addresses are a subset of the addresses you're asking about. Exactly. So so in practice, so your Light Wallet sends a message to a full node somewhere on the network, one of its peers, and this full node will then keep an eye on that. As long as you're connected to it, it will keep an eye on those addresses and it will send you, it will actually send you a, a block, but with only those transactions in it that match. And each of those transactions will have the correct proof that it actually belongs in the block. Right, which the light client is then able to check. So the light client checks, okay, is this actually the address I cared about or is this a false positive? Mm -hmm. Is the block valid as far as hash power goes? And then is the transaction valid, I guess. And if that all checks out, then the light client sort of knows 
fairly sure that it has been paid, even though they're still trusting hash power. Yeah. So there's a couple of issues with this. We talked about one already. Yeah, just to be clear, in case any listeners are confused, this is not what the rest of the episode is going to be about. This is like a trick that exists, has been existing for the past, what is it, eight years, something like that. Yeah. Probably longer than that. What we're actually going to discuss is improvements on this solution. Because there are problems with this solution, and that's what Shorts is going to explain now. What are the problems with this solution? Yeah, so one problem is privacy. And particularly because you don't want to use too much data, there apparently are quite a few wallets out there that will that will use the lowest false positive rate possible. So you, you can say, okay, you know, do I want lots of false positives? So lots of information about other addresses, so I have good privacy. But you can also set it very low, and apparently they use a very low one, which means that you're really just telling the full node that you're talking to, okay, this is the address I care about. Yeah. And that's a problem, because that full node you're talking to might be, I don't know, Chainalysis. Yeah, and I think it's not just that. I think there's also some additional puzzling you the full nodes can do. Like, if he would be interested in this address, he wouldn't be asking about this or with change or something. I, I don't know the details. I just know that this solution, this SPV solution is broken privacy-wise. Yeah. I, I think Nick Jonas broke it a long time ago. He works for Blockstream now. Okay. And uh, since then, everyone agrees that this is broken privacy-wise. If you're using SPV in this way, you're essentially giving away all of your addresses to a random node on the Bitcoin network. Okay, so that's also bad. Or, or several, probably even several nodes. You're just giving yeah. away your privacy. It's broken, it's broken. Yeah. The other problem is that it's pretty intense on the node that has to do this, that has to provide these filters. Because if you're running a full node, now some random node starts talking to you and says, hey, please give me updates about these addresses. Right. And so you need to do a bunch of CPU use for people and it's, you're just doing it voluntarily. And it turns out that that's even exploitable. If you create a special filter, you can create a lot of CPU load for somebody, even though you don't actually care about those transactions. So you can, right. you know, especially those Raspberry Pis, which just turn into steaming, you know. Machines. Yeah. So in this case, the the light client, the SPV client, is making the filter for the addresses it cares about, plus false positives, gives this filter to a full node on the network, and then this full node has to decipher which addresses the, the light client is interested in, mm -hmm. and this is costing the full node CPU. Power. Exactly. So it's costly, and it and the full node isn't earning anything by it, unless it's a spy note, and then we're back to problem one. Well, yeah, and that creates a perverse incentive, of course, because exactly. for normal people there is really no reason to do this other than altruism. But for spy notes, there is a financial motive to do this. So, you know, guess who are serving this? So spy okay, notes. let's let's move on to a new approach that was produced, I believe, proposed around 2018, maybe 2019, mm -hmm. by um, Lalu. Yep, roast beef. Lightning Labs' CTO. Exactly. I cannot mimic his speaking face, but somebody, somebody <laughs> could edit it. Nobody can. This is often referred to as Neutrino, but technically Neutrino is an implementation of that. Of the general idea. Yeah, of the idea of compact block filters. Mm -hmm. The BIPs you want to look for are BIP 157 and BIP 158. Okay. So, let's first. I think we should first talk about high-level what's going on and why it's good. And mm -hmm. then I'll try to do a quick explainer on what it's actually doing at a more nitty-gritty technical level. Because it's kind of cool, I think. Sounds good to me. 
All Start right. with the high level stuff. So the high level stuff, the if you're running a full node, you're no longer getting custom filters from the peers that connect to you. There is only one filter. Basically, what you do as a full node is you process all your blocks and you create an index for every block. There is you know a couple kilobytes of information that you need to keep track of. And you do that once, and then peers can ask for it, and you just give it to them. So every peer gets the same information from you. And I then, think what you're trying to say is with the SPV solution we discussed a minute ago, the light client creates a filter that includes the addresses it cares about plus false positives. And in this neutrino solution or compact block site filters or whatever it was called officially, this is reversed and the full node actually creates the filter. That's right. And the filter discovers everything. Right. Basically all... Everything that's in the block. Every Well, every output script that's in the block mm-hmm. and for every input, the output script that corresponds to it, which would be in the previous block that right. it's spending from. So this means that any full node, especially now with Bitcoin Core 21, any full node can create a filter, right? That's right. And they would all be the same because they're all seeing the same block. Yes. Okay. And now on the client side, what you do is you connect to any peer... And you say, give me the filters. Yeah. You you know, this, you're not giving away any information when you're doing that, other than that you're a light client. The light client just asks for the filter. Right. And it could, you know, in theory, it could ask multiple peers and make sure that they get the same filter. Then uh, what? The, what does the light client do with the filter? So what the light client is going to do is it going to, it's going to see, it's going to go through its own addresses and it's going to see, does the filter match any of those addresses? So basically... You can see for every block, you run your addresses through the filter and it'll say, yes, this block contains transactions pertaining to the filter. And there's some false there, positives. Or there are still false positives. So what you really, what the light clients really do is they use the filter, they check, they have their addresses, they put their addresses through this filter or whatever they actually do technically, you're going to explain it in a minute. And then uh, computer is going to tell them, yes, there might be relevant transactions in this block. Or, no, there are definitely no relevant transactions for you in this block. Yeah, and so this false positive story is, as far as I know, is not because of privacy. It's just because math can't do better. Right. And this has to do with, like, if you want less false positives, then the files that the node need to keep track of need to be bigger. Right. So if you make the filters really, really, really big, then you never get false positives, but then you might as well download the whole block. Right. So when you so get if, a, if if the if computer says no, if computer says no, there are definitely no relevant transactions in this block for you, then the light client just ignores the block. Exactly. Which and, is you can do that. Assuming the filters are not a lie, um it, it should work. What if the computer says yes? If the computer says yes, you have to download this block. Then you download the full block. Yeah. So and even then, a light client in that case downloads well, whatever it is, two megabytes of data, just downloads the whole block. Yep. And then searches in this block to see if there was actually a transaction pertaining to that light pl- client in the block. Yeah, so if, you're, you know, if your wallet is tracking thousands of addresses, then maybe you have to download one in a hundred blocks as a false positive, even though you haven't done anything. Right. So this depends on how many addresses you're watching. You get a little bit more false positives. But yeah, you have to download a bunch of blocks. Yeah, so this, you actually have to download slightly more data, I guess, compared to the previous privacy-broken SPV solution. Yeah, but you get much better privacy. Yeah, because now sometimes you need to download a block 
Yeah, and so the even the only sometimes thing in there, if there's a false positive, so sometimes you download a block for nothing, but sometimes you got to download a block, uh, but then you get much better privacy. Yeah, and you could even be smarter about it. Like you could request, you know, one block per peer, so that the only thing each peer knows is that you may care about something in that block, which is not a lot of information. Maybe you fetch them over tour if you want to be even better. So that's kind of nice privacy-wise. But yeah, it reuses a bit more bandwidth. Is that a high-level part? No. So we can also talk about some of the downsides. So the biggest problem is that the filters can be fake. As in, a node can just give you complete nonsense. And then you start asking for blocks. First of all, then then it would you know it would match at the wrong block. So you, you wouldn't be able to find the blocks that pertain to you. Of course... You know, at some point, maybe you can figure that out if you if you ask multiple peers for their filters and then you start comparing which one is lying. But that's a can of worms. The good news is it is being used by a lot of the especially Lightning uh, mobile wallets. Mm-hmm. And they, they seem to work, but maybe we still live in this happy times. I think we talked about that last time, right? Where now everybody's being nice to each other, but maybe one day people are stop being nice to each other and then... I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, we we spoke about it in the podcast, but I think in a different context, right? Yeah. Or not. Well, anyways, yeah. So one problem is that the fil- you're a light client. I'm a light client. I'm downloading this filter from users who is running a full node. And then I'm, I actually have no idea if this filter is actually a filter or just gibberish. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, not just gibberish, but just wrong. Like it has the wrong transactions in it. It will match the wrong things. Right. So And there's um, no way for me to tell the difference. No, and unfortunately, it's also not the case that if you download a block, you cannot recreate the filter. So the only way to create the filter is to download the entire blockchain. And the reason for that is that the filter contains not just the outputs, it's the outputs you know, right? You, If you download a block, you know what outputs are in that block. Mm-hmm. But it also contains the outputs for every input Mm. and so that has that refers to earlier blocks earlier blocks right so the only way to really check whether it's not lying would be to you know find a block and then make sure that you find all the blocks you know for those inputs and it would just be a mess so that sounds this sounds like a very big downside it sounds like if someone want would want to attack these kind of light clients yeah, but then you have to maybe compare it to the you know earlier uh, situation that we had with the Bloom filters. It's kind of also about lying by omission. Lying by That's omission, really the yeah. problem, right? Because and it's it's sort of a DOS factor this time on the client because the client could be having to download every single block because it doesn't know which one to download. All right, so is that a high level part? Yeah, I think in the long run, you know, one of the thoughts is to turn that into a commitment into the block. But that itself is controversial, but that would at least solve this trust problem because if the filters are committed in a block, then you do know that they're correct. At least you're back to SPV proof. You're at least back to trusting the hash power. Yeah. So then mm-hmm. you're at the same trust as you were with the Bloom filters in terms of trusting hash power. Okay. So let's maybe talk about how this works. Yeah. You want to get more technical? Yeah, so like I said, so here's the recipe. If you're if you're serving these filters, what you do is you go through a block for each block. You take all the output scripts except op return because that's not interesting. Mm-hmm. And you take all the for every input you take all the output scripts it refers to. Mm-hmm. And you just put those in a row. And now for every item you're going to hash it. There's a special hash function for it. 
you know, we talked about hash functions, I think, in another episode. So now you have these hashes, which are just essentially all semi-random, right? Just looks like noise. And then you're going to... Looks like random numbers. Yes. They're deterministically random. So if you take an output script, you will get the same hash. And then you're going to sort those hashes. And you're going to calculate the difference between the hashes. Because hashes are just big numbers. So you can subtract. You, you sort them and then you subtract them. And it turns out that this is something you can compress with Golomb or Gulomb. I don't know how to pronounce it. Encoding or coding. And this is just some mathematical trick that I don't understand, but it turns out that if, if you have a pattern like this, a bunch of sorted random things, you can compress it very efficiently. And so you do that, and now the client gets this compressed piece of data, and what it's going to do is it's going to look at the addresses that it is interested in, mm -hmm. or the scripts that it is interested in, and it's going to hash its own scripts, and remember, the hashes were sorted. Mm -hmm. So now you can actually check the filter for the first hash, and then the second hash, and the third hash, etc., and see if you have a match. And then you can stop when your hash is higher, is a greater number than the ha the last hash you checked. Hmm. So I don't understand that at all, but okay. sounds interesting. Okay. Well, that's fine. <laughs> it wasn't the best explanation, probably, but you can find it on the internet. But it basically. It's, it's kind of cool, fancy math that lets you, you know, very efficiently communicate a lot of information. Love it. Right. Okay, so that was the high-level explanation. And then after that, the mathematical explanation, which I didn't understand, but maybe some of our listeners did. Probably only if they already understood it. Next question. You just mentioned embedding the filters into blocks. Mm -hmm. Why is this not already the case? To just well, put it bluntly, like first of all, because it's a soft fork, and we've talked about, you know, soft forks are the kind of things you want to be very careful with. Mm -hmm. But also because it's controversial. Because why the, is it controversial? Well, for probably for several reasons, but one reason would be how easy do you want to make it for people not to verify the whole chain? Right. Even if you're using this neutrino solution, just like the SPV solution, which we discussed at first, it, you're still not getting full security. You're still trusting hash power, as I've mentioned in both cases. So you're trusting that at least the majority of miners isn't lying to you, essentially. Yeah. Right? So then the question is, okay, we can make it very easy to run light clients, but do we actually want to make it very easy for people to run light clients? Because that way they're all going to trust on miners and maybe that's not such a good idea in the first place. Exactly. And, and there's kind of two forces where people are drawn to, right? On the one hand, you could say, well, if it's difficult to run a light client, maybe more people will run a full note on a good computer. Mm -hmm. But there's another attracting force that will just get people to use custodial wallets or some other thing. Yeah, not or, or not Bitcoin at all. Exactly. Right. So, so, And it's hard to say. And in the long run, maybe it's different, right? Maybe in the short run, by supporting this, you get lots of mobile adoption of people who at least you know use Bitcoin, at least check the headers rather than check absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. But maybe on, on the very long run, that doesn't happen. Now, in the longer run, we have Moore's Law. So if the block size doesn't increase, but and if networks and computers do get better, then maybe in a couple of decades, I think Luke Dasher did a calculation on it, maybe in a couple of decades, it becomes real practical to run this thing on your phone. Yeah, and I, I guess this would also assume on Moore's Law holding up, right? Yeah, or at least some somewhat holds up. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, it takes even longer. Mm -hmm. We could also decrease the block size limit 
as Luke suggests. And that, that way it would be shorter. That, that way we sh- could use full notes on our phone sooner. Yeah, I don't know if that's worth having a giant civil war over, though. And there was another thing... I think only Luke thinks that. Yeah. And well, so, not just Luke. There's there's a couple more people, but yeah. probably, so this, probably this not going to happen. This goes back to our uh, U3XO episode, where we discussed another way to verify blocks that takes less RAM. And one particular advantage of that approach is that you could sync a note on your computer and then just have a QR code on your computer because you trust your own computer. You scan it with your phone and boom, your note on your mobile phone is synced. So that gets rid of the initial sync problem. And this UTXO technique allows you to work with very little RAM, which probably means that you can sync your phone on Wi-Fi and it'll be fast. And then maybe, you know, you use some of these light client techniques if you're outside doing something. So, you know, when you're outside, you make a payment or you receive a payment and you kind of trust it. But when you get home, you can immediately see if something went wrong. Yeah. So the episode is short. Uh, neutrino compact site block filters. <laughs> They're new type of light clients that offer more privacy. They are being used in Lightning wallets, but they're not specifically for Lightning wallets, right? Are they used in any other? Are they used in normal light wallets by now? I don't know. I don't think so. I haven't kept track of new normal light wallets, but I guess most of them are Lightning wallets nowadays, the new wallets, aren't they? But there are also... New wallets, sure, but there's, I think Electrum, they, they would be interested to maybe implement it as well, but I don't think they have yet. That might be worth a brief mention too, right? The third solution that people are using is Electrum. Yeah, yeah, that, I, that I, is another sort of in-between solution. Yeah. yeah, as far as I know, Electrum will just say, here are my addresses, give me transactions, and then it will get SPV proofs. So you get less privacy than Bloom filters, but we already discussed that the privacy might be zero, but you do get the same security in terms of proving that these transactions are real. Right. And the same lying by emission and the same problem with potential spy nodes. Yeah, I guess that's all we've got here. I think so. In that case, thank you for listening to the Van Weerdem Shores NATO. There you go.